The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked, no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, bringing you every week rich material to help you become more embodied, to be more mindful. And I think in today's world, to have tools that we must have to feel a connection to our authentic self through the mind, the soul, and the body. And many of you loved my guest that I have back on today. She is such a special guide in the world. She is a deep philosopher and a renowned astrologer, Carol Ferris M.A. practices astrology in Portland, Oregon, where she consults with clients. She teaches and tutors privately. And at the Portland School of Astrology, where she teaches, she also writes, she completed her master's in interdisciplinary studies at Merrill Hurst University in Oregon. That was in 2013. The title of her thesis, The Sky's Body, Constellations and Medicine, reflects her ongoing interest in the nature-based medicine and governance thinking of the ancient Near East and Chinese philosophers and astrologers. Welcome back, Carol Ferris. Oh, thanks, Laura. So it's nice to be reminded of one's uh, history. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. The, the biography of you. Um, after you were on my show last time, there was a huge response internationally as well as in the USA. You really do have a profound understanding of astrology and philosophy, and I believe we have never needed it more than we need it right this moment in current time. So it's a real honor to have you back. Well, thank you for in- inviting me. I, I, I love talking with you, and, um, and I like being guided by you, too. So it's a mutual, ben- mutually beneficial opportunity, and I'm, I'm very glad to hear that it was so well-received before, and I hope I can make a contribution again. Well, we need you today, and when we were about to go on air, I was asking you about the new moon that you were saying is actually happening while we'll be on the air today, so maybe you can explain that a little bit to the listeners. Well, um, the lunar cycle is um, just, it's rhythms of light and dark, and it's the dance of light, of night light between the sun and the moon. 
So as the moon moves and as the earth moves around the sun, the moon carries the sun's light. The moon, uh, that's how um, they talked about it in the ancient world. They knew that the sun burned and the moon didn't. And so they said, she carries light. So in that rhythm, in that cycle, month to month to month, as the earth's shadow falls on the moon, that is the new or the dark moon. And in the stages of light, as the relationship between the three powerful energies, the two lights and earth, as it grows and changes, their light emerges. So in the stages of the lunar cycle, the dark moon, and we'll be there in this day, the dark moon, we could say symbolically, everything that that we harvested out of last month's cycle, everything we grew, everything that we got the benefit of, everything that we stored in the seeds that we take from the cycle because light and dark is about growing things and light moves our energy. Light is energy and light moves our energy. So the dark moon is quiet and I find often people are quite tired in the new moon and I like to organize myself. I don't like to over-program myself too much in the balsamic and dark moons so that what wants to grow in the coming month has a chance to gain strength through rest. And I'm no different than any other modern person. I am not very good about resting in the dark. I, I like my screen time and I like the lights on and I like heat and light and so, like most modern people, um, I, I bend, as we all do. I have a trope towards the light. And so it took me a long time and astrological thinking to bring me to the benefit of the dark. So, in that cycle, the new moon is dark, and then it goes to crescent, a little bit of light. And then it goes to first quarter, and you look outside, and it looks like somebody drew a, a line straight down the middle of the moon. It's half light, half dark. The Earth's shadow is falling on half the moon. And then it goes to gibbous. It's lighter than dark. And then we have the full moon, and it's as light as it's going to be at night for a month. Mm. And everything that has been gathering, the waxing, cycle of the moon then begins to distribute itself as things go darker at night. So then it goes to the disseminating stage and then it goes to the last quarter moon. It's half light and half dark and getting darker. And then it goes to the balsamic stage, which is darker than light. It's the reverse of the crescent. There's just a little cuticle of light and, um, And balsamic doesn't just mean vinegar. Balsamic is an old Greek word that means that stage in any cycle in which the essence of the entire cycle is distilled and preserved for the future. So after the harvest, the seeds, the distillation and preservation, and then it's dark again, and everything that's seeded can prepare itself to grow again. So that's where we are today. We're, we're right between the end of the balsamic stage where the light is waning, but we have all of the seeds from the last month to grow something else in this coming month. 
And that's the symbolic seeds that you actually will see walking around Portland, Oregon right now coming through the dirt. You, you'll you see that yes. little tip of the bud of that flower. Yes, because in in terms of where we are in the season, not just in the month, not just in the lunar month, <coughs> excuse me, but where we are in the season is that the light is slowly returning after the winter solstice. So the winter solstice is the year-long version of the dark moon. It's the darkest mm. point of the year. And here in Portland, Oregon, on the 45th parallel north latitude, the winter solstice is almost exactly 15 hours of dark and 9 hours of light. So mm. as these, here we are, January 26th, we're uh, uh, over a month away from the solstice, and we're very close to the Chinese New Year, which is always the new moon, uh, uh, the second new moon after the solstice. And so new life is returning. So that's also, it's like the crescent stage of the moon, and it's like morning in, an, in a 24-hour period, and uh, we're beginning to grow again. I'd like to go back to what you were saying about honoring darkness or fatigue or needing to sleep more than normal. Um, I, I think there's so much symbolism in that because if we think about darkness and light and we think about light that's coming, I wonder if we can really enjoy and embrace what the light has to offer if we have not surrendered to the darkness in order to know the difference. Well, I think it's I think it's a a a question that operates on the material plane and, and our physical bodies. Um, I think it's a psychological question. I think it's a spiritual question. I think it's absolutely a collective question. How how can we live in the rhythms of light and dark? Um, I'm I'm not a luddite. I'm not, and I love my technology. I, um, as I say, I'm, I'm just like anyone else who likes to have the lights on all the time. But what I have come to understand, the, the more deeply I've understood the rhythms of light and dark, not only from the point of view of astrology, but certainly my introduction to classical Chinese medical thinking, which is very much rooted in this idea of the rhythms of light and dark, of the macrocosmic body and the microcosmic body, I have come to have a deep appreciation for the stages of darkness, which are with a, the, with a great paradox of the rhythm of light and dark, if we think of it really simply as growing things, and that light moves energy, and that energy, once moved, is productive, that it produces a harvest, that the harvest produces seeds, and that the seeds need to rest in order to grow. Yes. Then yes. The, one of the great paradoxes of the cycle is we don't get the harvest till it starts to get dark, and that's August. That at the point of maximum light, the summer solstice, when the days are long and it's warm and everything's growing like crazy, we don't actually, especially in Oregon, we don't actually get the harvest until the days begin to shorten again. And we get the deeper harvest as the dark is rising and we get the seeds for the next cycle as it becomes darker than light. And then we have an opportunity 
to protect and conserve what has been distilled in order for it to gain strength through rest and protection in order to grow. (coughs) So on on the most literal level, (coughs) the dark is beneficial in terms of rest. Um, You know, the Chinese say rest is the complement to motion. And there have been so many interesting studies that have been done. I, the one that most pot, that was most popularly represented was Alan Alda on his, on his Nova series about the creative mind. And one of the things that they have shown is that the parts of your brain that are, that are considered to be the neocortical, you know, active creative parts of the brain fire in the absence of stimulus, not in the presence of stimulus. And that, wow. that really got me to think that it's, it's in the presence of no thing, we could say dark, that things actually generate. So that, that metaphor goes a lot of different directions. So on, on an actual physical level, I think the dark is really important. And I do too on a, I'm going to take it even to a psychological level because I think in the work that I do with individuals, the greatest avoidance can be the darkness because it can be so scary and so overwhelming. And I often feel so lucky to hold people through that process because once you drop into it, then the metaphor of the soul seed of psychology grows from accepting and allowing. And it's simply the acceptance and allowance that will give you the light, but not until you fall into it. So there's so much symbolism in this darkness that I find relevant in every aspect of embodiment and soul mind body connection. I, I, I completely agree. I mean, we would. You and I, you know, we share a symbolic understanding about things. I think, I think about my own work as an astrologer and working with people who, in a 30-year cycle, are in the dark moon, I, which is a longer stretch. I think about what it's like to be depressed. I think what it's like to come to the seed-making as part of a cycle, whether it's every day or every month or every year or over a longer cycle in your life. And I think about how loss, about the, the, the intense and profound loss that accompanies things getting darker, whether it's a, the death of a spouse or the death of a friendship mm. or the loss of childhood or the end of a dream, that, that it's very easy to talk metaphorically and symbolically about the meaning of darkness and to embrace, to, we use the word embrace, but it's more like it embraces us. And yeah. the, the ability to not to resist it or to medicate it or to turn the lights on all the time and to, I, I'm not sure that I think that surrender is the right word. There are probably a lot of other verbs that are more accurate about, um, about letting the process work in you. But it's actually a part of what I think of not only as the body's work, 
that rest is a complement to motion, but that it's the, the psyche's work, it's the soul's work, yeah. that, to, that to ignore a passage in which loss gives you meaning and gives you seeds for another kind of growing, to only say to life, I only want what I had. Mm. I don't want something else to grow forward. Is it, it, it is completely understandable, and and the resistance to the meaning of loss and to because there's always <clears throat> loss as it gets darker. It's inevitable that the having respect for the importance of the light, what you had, what you grew, what you harvested, having respect for it and grieving it because in in my, in my uh, really current understanding, grief is a form of respect. Mm-hmm. So it's a part of maybe not surrender is the right word to the darkness, but it is a tango with, it is um, a, a moving work with the darkness, which is the acceptance of the loss. And to have respect for the place that something had in your life that ha- is going to, through seeding, produce something else, but it's never going to be what it was. And the word that keeps coming... Sorry? Go ahead. The word that keeps coming up as you're saying this is allow. To allow. I think that's a better better word than surrender. I certainly... I'm I'm a card-carrying member of the Pollyanna Club. (laughs) And uh, um, it's partly my nature, my Jupiterian nature... And it's partly my culture, and it's partly my generation. You know, I grew up in the generation, you know, better living through chemistry, and progress is our most important product. And, and so I, I like, like everyone, you know, it's always morning in America, this idea that, that there is something in the psyche that cannot allow a natural process that actually will bring you to what it is that you're after Coming, coming to that acceptance and to that allowance, no, it, it's a part of the work. And when it's dark, and you're grieving, and it's scary, and your imagination has been overtaken by images that you, you don't feel that you have control over, then um, the allowing is, it's, it's not just a metaphor, and it's not just permission, it's the work yeah, it is the work. It is the work that is so worthwhile. I wanted to go to um, last Saturday, this woman's march that was profound for all of us that were involved and you participated and I participated and so I many did. other <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people participated. And one of the neatest things that I think you've ever given the public um, to see was that chart that you created about the symbolism of Saturday astrologically. And I I had never thought of an event as having an actual astrological roadmap and the meaning of that astrology connection to the event. So I just wanted to get your input after the fact. You you did all of the um, calculations before the march, you participated in the march, and then 
in hindsight, I would love to hear reflections from you about how that astrological map either matched your experience or not. I'd love to hear what you what you feel thinking back on that experience that was so magical for so many of us. Well, um, astrology is a sim- both a, a, a it, it's a literal map, a horoscope. Horo is hour, and scope is map. So a horoscope is a map of the hour. So it is a map of a real place, of a real geography and a real system. It's a map of the solar system as if Earth were in the center. So in its literalness, it's very tempting to think of it causally. And, you know, I, you know my throwaway line about this. If, if the scientists find, Mar, find testosterone on Mars, then I'll begin to think of this, my language, in a, in a much more uh, literal way of cause and effect. I don't rule it out because clearly we have our experience of our sun and our moon and our earth that show us things have material effect. But uh, on a more, in, in a way I think useful level, astrology is a symbolic language that describes our experience of, of nature's rhythms and geography and how we live in it, how we describe and make meaning out of what we're living in. So the horoscope of the march, I wanted to see um, and, and to understand what was framing itself as I stepped into it. What was the larger frame that we were all going to step into? So the horoscope itself for Portland, Oregon at noon on January 24, 2017 made to me an astonishing picture of oceanic, feminine, harmonic, goodwill, and unity of the tribe. Hmm. So astrologically, Uh. how I would say it is, South Node, Neptune, Venus, Chiron, Mars, all clustered together closely in the sign of the oceanic Pisces, in the 11th house of community and tribe. So my experience of the march, as we, as we walked through downtown Portland and as people on every street from northwest and southwest and from all of public transportation and from the bridges across the rivers and you could see people across the river coming to gather, it was, I, I was so thrilled to see this material manifestation of emotional, psychological, spiritual unity that, um, that I, th- I thought this is the picture that the chart was making to me. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the chart had um, the moon in Scorpio, which is a, deep, a place of deep passion in a harmonious configuration with a Piscean energy and so a partnership was formed in the march. It was a marriage. It was an alchemical marriage of the tribe. And then later in the day when I saw all of the images of these marches all over the world, I began to see that, that the watery image, the oceanic image, that it wasn't just Portland, Oregon, which was thrilling enough, 
And I woke up, the first thing I woke up to in that morning was an email from a friend in Santa Barbara who had a picture that had come to her from her friends in New Zealand who were marching in New Zealand. And that's where January 21st started. So New Zealand was the first place in the day where this energy started. And so that was my first thrill, was this little electronic thrill of (laughs) how broadly distributed this energy was, how collective, how worldwide, how cosmic this energy was in my language, and that a a marriage, a, a kind of deeper marriage around the unity, kind of deep, passionate commitment. So that was one part of the chart. The other part of the chart that was very interesting to me is that the, that I'll say it astrologically first and then I'll talk about it symbolically. Saturn mythologically is the old form giver, the old man. When, when Galileo saw Saturn through his telescope, he said, yep, there's the old man's beard when he saw the rings of the planet. So Saturn, both mythologically and astrologically, symbolizes our desire to create form through the application of choice and limitation. And the planet um, Mars is about action, and the planet Uranus is about freedom and liberation. So there was fire present, there wasn't just water present in the day, there was fire. And if you take fire as spirit, then there was the ignition of something. There was an ignition, um, Saturn, the form giver, in a fire sign in this collective was igniting a, a collective spirit. And I, in retrospect, not during there, but in conversations with other astrologers around the world after the march, and in conversation with friends after the march, what I see, if we think of spirit also as imagination, and I don't mean making stuff up or fairy stories, but imagination in the sense of bringing forth images from the heart and the images of the heart married to the mind, which produces our collective experience, that there was that that all these individual fires, these hearts that were being ignited, are making a bigger fire, and mm-hmm. that I what I see now is possible. Although we're still trying to understand how to focus our collective imagination and our collective spirits, that got ignited that day. And the last thing that was astonishing to me about the horoscope and about the experience is that in Portland, the sign that was rising in the east at the time that we collected was Taurus, which is ruled by Venus, the feminine. So not only was Venus in Pisces, Mm -hmm. which is the oceanic feminine, the divine, all-present feminine of love and connectedness and resonance, but it ruled the march. <laughs> mm. So I, I, and I feel like um, in retrospect of what this last week has shown us, um, I heard this morning that the Russian parliament has um, outlawed, has eliminated the rules um, about domestic abuse in that country. 
that it is no longer illegal. Domestic abuse is no longer illegal. I may have that wrong. But, and I think about the elimination of the budget in the Department of Justice for Women in Crisis, and and I see how this march and the oceanic collection uh, and of respect and reverence for the feminine, that to let that imagination and that spirit continue to burn very brightly is a really important way for us right now. Well, and I want to go a little deeper with that because no one, and, and by the way, the fact that people were marching, you're so right about the inspiration of seeing countries marching on behalf of our country. That that was just unified yeah. in the most precious, beautiful, soul, heartfelt way. But also, as we move from the march on Saturday into the current reality of the U.S. government, there's no way to avoid the vitriol or the anger that is coming through the disputes and the eliminations. And so you mentioned the word frame. You put a frame around where everything was sitting on Saturday. And and I would love to ask you to help all of us by putting some sort of a frame around what you feel is what we must be prepared for, how we can be active in the same spirit of Saturday. What, what would be your philosophical, astrological thoughts about moving forward? Well, I have, I have a lot of them. <laughs> Excuse me. By the way, anyone listening, the weather in Portland on Saturday, Carol and I are both coughing and clearing our throats because we (laughs) were basically swimming through this march. It was not just a little bit of rain. The chart was definitely wet. There was so (laughs) much water in the chart. It wasn't wasn't a surprise. It it was really wet. When you say oceanic, we were in the ocean on this walk. No, no, absolutely (laughs) It was wet, so we're all struggling through these coughs and colds that were worth it after Saturday, but there was no way around the weather um, anyway. So, framing, um, so let's bring together the, the, the earlier topic, darkness, and framing Saturn. And in my language, that's Pluto and Saturn. The name Pluto is um, a Roman word that morphed from an earlier name, Plautus, which meant riches under the earth. An earlier root of this force in nature, the underworld, was Hades in the Greek world. And even deeper and farther back in the Western world was Erishkigel, the original goddess of the underworld, and her sister Inanna, Venus, ruled the above world. So we all, we humans, as storytellers and frame givers and meaning makers, have been trying to understand a world we cannot see since we began telling stories and making art and framing things. There is a world, the, we call it the underworld, that, cannot, that is not the above world. 
So it is a world that we have to leave this world that's sunny and has rhythms of light and dark and is comfortable. And so we try to imagine, what is that world? What is that world that is not visible to us? And almost every world culture has a dark underworld that once you enter it, you may not ever come back from it. Or if you come back from it, you will be transformed in some way in which you are altered from the state in which you entered it. So whether we think of it as death or a journey, uh, a journey of transformation, a punishment, no matter how we think about it, it is not the world, the above world of light. It's a dark world. And it is... In Western thinking, it's Pluto's world, and Pluto rules darkness and all things dark that can erupt, if not contained, into the upper world. So Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Grimm's fairy tales, fairy tales and stories and mythologies from Java and Russia and the Nordic cultures and the African cultures <coughs> all have stories about the rise of the underworld into the upper world and the challenges that they create and how to live with the dark, how to come to terms with the dark. So a part of what we're all experiencing in individually and collectively is that the dark is rising. And the dark, not in the rhythmic sense of light and dark, that there's high noon and that there's a full moon and that there's um, a summer solstice of the rhythm of light and dark, but that the dark, including everything that we talked about, that it's a place of rest, that it's a place of comfort, that it's a place of, of, of inner growth that comes about through rest, but it's also a place of loss, it's a place of death, it's a place of um, rotting and composting, that it's um, a, a scary place, that it has things in it that are hard for us to look at and that we don't want to look at. It's the place of nightmares, it's the place of difficulty and opposition, it's a place of war, it's a place of blood. So the underworld symbolized in my language by Pluto. And, and for me, when New Horizons went by Pluto and began sending back photographs of, a, of this ball in, in space that sometimes has been a planet and sometimes is a planetoid and sometimes is called a dwarf planet, seeing Pluto to me was a metaphor for all of us having to look at things that we have been reluctant to look at. I include myself in that, that it is time to really see Pluto. Now, Pluto is also the name for plutonium, for the element plutonium. It's what's used to make bombs, and so it has that dark, powerful, potentially destructive force as well as a force for light and expansion. So... What we're dealing with now as we move through 2017 and 2018, 2019 and 2020 
is that the two forces, Saturn, containment, structure, and framing, making decisions, building meaning through uh, understanding the structural elements of things, Part of my own directive to myself and what I'm talking with clients about and what I'm teaching classes about, about these next years, is how do we build a container in relationship to the powerful, sometimes eruptive, sometimes destructive, sometimes protective, important forces of the dark. And we're doing this now at a point in our history where another very large historical cycle, which has been one of revolution and change, where this particular time, how will we contain what is dark, comes at the same time that enormous growth has been accomplished. A revolution has happened Growth and progress all around the world have been made. Serious illnesses have been eliminated. Great freedoms have been created for women, for people who have been marginalized. Those gains, that growth, that revolution, and including its excesses and the fears it created for people who did not share the goals of that change have met the contraction of Saturn. Hmm. So a part of what's going on right now is a huge contraction around what has expanded. And so the challenge for each of us not only in the collective, but each of us in our personal lives, is here we are at a point where something that has been growing and changing and moving and lighting and and that has come about because of risks and because of opportunities and because of rewards has met a point not where it can't grow anymore, but where the, the um, containers that have been created to hold it, that includes laws and governance and structures of banking and structures of Wall Street and governmental structures, national governance structures, international governance structures, agreements, treaties, pacts, all of this, we've reached a point where how, are we, how can we not only hold the growth and the change that has occurred, but how will we make it through this incredible contraction that is going on, which is this desire to contain and hold it? So when I heard the, the uh, executive order about the wall yesterday, about Trump wants to build this wall on our border, I thought there is a classic example of trying to build a structure to contain darkness. Mm-hmm. And that that is for, for him and him as an expression of something that's at work in the collective and for people who have joined him in that expression, that's an expression of, of a way to build a container to hold what's frightening and scary and big. It's a way to do it. We might not agree with it as a structure and a form to come to terms with it, 
But I thought that's an, that is an example of what's at work in the world. There have been other times in history and other cultures where we have faced this before. We faced it in 1913 on the eve of World War I. We faced it in 1939 on the eve of World War II. So these are historical cycles that are repeating themselves where great expansion and growth is followed by a contraction. So we're not doomed to repeat history, but I really think these days, and not only personally but in the collective, how can we bring our fire and our heat and our imagination to bear on a, on a spiritual structure that radiates out into the physical collective world that makes it possible to, for us to live with the dark, not by being overwhelmed with it so that we have to beat it back or make it wrong or make it other, how do we live with our own darkness, with our own judgment, with our own hatred, with our own unwillingness to come to terms with what's hard for us, what we won't let go of? And so we're at, I think we're at a time of extraordinary opportunity. And when you look at the historical cycles and you look at the art that was made in times like these, you see it's possible to frame it and to create containers that hold it in magnificent, powerful, educational, and unifying ways. Mm. Gosh, that's so beautifully said. It, it keeps bringing up that famous quote from Gandhi for me, that you must be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I think that when we each take that individual plight to do what we can do within our own framework and our own frames in our lives, that is going to radiate, that is going to create a peaceful revolution. <laughs> I love the oxymoron yeah. of those two words, but the, the art, the creativity, the collective whole that was seen on Saturday at the march, the breathing, yeah. the holding, and then the responsibility that really does become an individual's own way of moving through the world every day. So it all gets back to that personal responsibility. And maybe that's what's being called of all of us that I felt was so symbolic Saturday. And many people came back into the media after Saturday saying, why didn't we see this uproar during the election? Why wasn't everybody marching five and six months ago? But it can't happen until it happens. And I think yeah, that no, yeah. the the igniting of that has then brought everyone, everybody had to snap out of it and wake up and say, what will be my individual plight? And, and perhaps there is no value in creating more distress, anger, and uproar. Maybe there is more value in going back into that personal darkness metaphorically to really take ownership of what one is doing that is very much in the same metaphoric pattern that we are being put through with the government, the wall, and all the things that are causing such rage. Well, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I was listening to a, a really wonderful radio interview with a, um, a Christian, um, I don't know if he was a minister or a pastor, I'm sorry, I don't know what his denomination was. <clears throat> he talks about the Bible as poetry. And he said, when, when he was asked why he thought about it like that, he said, 
Poetry isn't to figure things out, it's to enter into them. Hmm. Yeah. And I was inexpressibly moved by that because I think it's so much, it's, very, it's a very, very uh, simple way to talk about the time that we're in, to enter into them. It doesn't mean that we don't have to build a structure. It doesn't mean that we don't have to frame it. But there is something about these days, this last year, this year to come, the years to come, but especially this year to come, in which as we come to terms with our own darkness, our own anger, our own hatred, the volatility of it, the blackness of it, the violence of it, the reality of it. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, entertainment, what's called entertainment, <laughs> um, to see how erupted it is in, in our broader culture to, to begin to, I, I think own is an overworked word, but to see it. And then to enter into it, not to become dark or to be swallowed by the dark or for the dark to co-opt our image making. And I think that's one of the tasks that's before us is to have the courage and the, um, to keep our own convictions and our own light and our own image-making alive and lit and mutually sustained in the face of the images of darkness and to let them be, to not try to extinguish them by saying there can only be light, there can only be light. And so part of the challenge of this year especially, and I, I you know, I, I tease my, my clients. I say, you know, your questions are the Astrologer's Full Employment Act, <laughs> which is that, that this, it's hard to figure things out in a way which is like, yes, this is it, this is the answer, this is the structure, this is the form, I've got it, now I'm going forward. It's not a great time for... Those for solution. It's a really important time to be open and curious and to enter into it. And when everything seems to be calling us for action and resolution and solution, to, for someone like me, an astrologer, to say, stay open to light, to light's possibilities in the face of darkness doesn't feel very comforting or constructive. But I believe in my language and my own experience of my language in which I am trusting my investigation for what is true, what is light, how my own fire lights the darkness, my own darkness, what needs to be illuminated in my own darkness, and that that is a progress that will bring me eventually to a structure of value and meaning that puts me in a better relationship to it, not in control of it, not the elimination of it, not the enslavement of it. You know, I I think about in the Yijing, the Chinese say, hatred is a subjective form of involvement with the object of hatred. Hmm. 
So these violent psychological, emotional, spiritual, physical, material states bind us to them. And freedom is the opposite of that. So trying to illuminate what we are bound to in the dark and with negativity and understanding its place, not to co-opt us or to drown us or to dwarf us, not to surrender to it, but to allow it to bring forward now the conversation at the beginning. There is this interim period of letting, of, of building towards light through curiosity and questing and openness and possibility. And I think that's part of what this year is about. I think then, 2018, 2019, we will begin to concretize what we have collectively imagined. And I've, I've been ha- I had a very interesting conversation with another astrologer overseas this morning, and we were talking about um, where is the leadership to focus this energy because that's how we, we are used to thinking about it is who's going to focus us. But if ever we were at a place where we see, and the marches were an example of that, that the leadership is us. Yeah. It's not a mob, it's not anarchy, but it is the reclamation of the responsibility for our place and for the place that we're trying to create together, and that's what got ignited. But it hasn't been lit up in that way for a very, very long time. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we have to be sensible and resonant and delicate and questing and poetic as we try and understand how to keep the common fire lit in a way that illuminates the darkness and creates form and structure that help us all hold it in a way that moves us all together, forward together. Boy, and that is so interesting with how we open the show today with this dark moon that's happening as we're speaking, it really is a full circle in the symbolic language of now and what's happening in our world astrologically and what's happening in nature and how these cycles and different times, as you put it, are like no other time. But right this moment in time, we must adhere to the individual plight that we saw on Saturday. And yeah. that, I believe, is the great hope. It, it almost reminds me of the, the, the thought behind hate cannot drive out hate, only love can, when yeah. MLK spoke that. I think that time in history brought everyone to the foreground, and here we are with a different time, but that sense of rise, we have to rise, and with that, looking at our individual lives and then bringing that into the collective whole. Yes. So you do you great, feel more a great summary, Laura? Do you feel hopeful in in a in a way? I mean, with all of this, would you say that you feel hopeful, or is that not the correct word that you would use to describe how you feel currently? Well, I would say I, I, I'm going to give a, a a sort of double-edged answer to that. I do feel hopeful, and <clears throat> I um. 
I have come to a different relationship with the word hope as a result of the quite remarkable work of Dr. Stephen Jenkinson, who is a Canadian theologian and teacher who, um, who is called Griefwalker, who is doing quite remarkable work with hospice and, and with um, caring for the dying within the North American medical system. And he, in, in a, a documentary movie, he's talking with some young doctors, and he says, he writes three words on the dry board in front of them. Hopeful, hopeful, hopeless, hope-free. Hmm. And he t- turns to them and he says, hope is the enemy of the present. Hmm. And it shocked me to my core. I was in a room, I was in a very large audience of counselors and therapists. There was a collective gasp in response to that statement. And so I, that is my, my um, more measured response to the word hopeful. I am. <clears throat> but what I see is if I use hope to avoid looking at the present, if I only want the world that I can imagine and that doesn't work with the world as it is, my hopefulness won't, won't matter. And I use that word matter really deliberately, that, that the, the, the heart and the spirit and the fire of my imagination and the vision I want to bring to bear in the world if I only focus on how I wish it were and don't use the fire and the light to illuminate what really is, then I will have not made good use of it. Oh, that's so well said, Carol. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. And we're going to have to wrap up soon, so I want to be sure that the listeners know how to find you. What is the best way for someone to reach out to you and contact you? Well, my, um, I am uh, getting ready to launch my website. It's carolferrisastrology.com. And um, I'm on Facebook. At, uh, my, my site is on Facebook, carolferrisastrology.com. And my personal email is carolferrispdx at gmail.com. So I welcome comment, and, um, and I'm always illuminated and chastened by what um, people have to say. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to be open to it, Laura. It's just really a privilege to be here. Oh, well, you, you're one of my teachers in life, and I salute you, and I, I get teary because I lost one of my mentors, Mary Tyler Moore, yesterday, and, and you're know, one of I'm my... I'm so sorry. Uh, you're one of my current mentors, and I'm so, so phenomenally grateful for you, and before we sign out, I just want viewers or listeners to know that the spelling of your name is C-A-R-O-L. F-E-R-R-I-S so that they have the proper spelling and Carol Ferris thank you Um, and you do help me always remember that I complete myself as all of us do and I always love to end the show by reminding our listeners that you complete 
you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. 